For years, electric vehicles have struggled to take hold in the U.S. You know about that. Now, right now, just about 1% of the 250 million cars, trucks, and SUVs on the road are electric. But that is starting to change and happening very quickly. Just in the first quarter of this year, electric car ownership rose by about 60%. And regulations recently adopted in California are set to turbocharge that number of electric vehicles on the road. The mandate is a gradual phase-out of new gas-powered vehicles by 2035. New York recently announced it will follow California's lead, and several other states are likely to follow suit. So... How big of a deal are these new regulations? And is our infrastructure up to the challenge? I mean, can it handle an influx of, EV, of EVs? What, what about battery production? Can that be ramped up as well? And does Biden's Inflation Reduction Act help to stimulate the transition to zero emission vehicles? Well, we'll be talking about the promise of brand new electric batteries, including trains. We're going to talk about battery trains. Did you know the electric batteries and trains now? They're experimenting with it. We'll talk about it. Joining me now to talk about the future of electric vehicles and take your questions are my guest, Jessica Transick professor at the Institute for Data Systems and Society at MIT in Cambridge, and David Reichmuth, senior en engineer at the Union of Concerned Scientists Clean Transportation Program. He's based in Oakland. Welcome, both of you, to Science Friday. Thanks so much. Thanks. You're Pleasure welcome. to be here. Uh, we want to hear from our audience also. Do you have an electric car or vehicle? If you don't, why not? And are, are there technology improvements that might entice you? Anything you've worried about also as people adopt electric over gas cars. Our number, 844-724-8255. That's 844-SIDE-TALK. Let's get on with uh, with our questions. Uh, let, let me ask you, uh, Professor Transick, how significant are these new regulations in California? What's your overall impression of how they'll impact the clean energy transportation transition? Yeah, I mean, they're really significant. Um, you know, it's basically signaling to the market that this transition is happening. You know, if we also consider New York's uh, commitments, this represents a large portion of new car sales in the U.S. and the U.S. is a large market, um, you know, globally. So it's really, I think, going to help accelerate the transition to electric vehicles. That transition is already happening, but when you're thinking about climate change, the question is, you know, how quickly is that transition gonna happen? And is it gonna happen quickly enough to, you know, help draw down greenhouse gas emissions to avoid the worst, you know, help avoid the worst impacts of climate change? Mm -hmm. and, and, and David, how realistic is this target? I mean, no new gas cars being sold, by 2035 in California and New York and several other states which are likely to adopt these regulations? Yeah, it's it's definitely realistic and achievable. Um, you know, one important thing about this regulation, it's not about flipping a switch. It's not about setting a target in 2035 and just hoping we get there. Um, these rules start with model year 2026 vehicles and require 35% of new vehicles to be um, zero emission vehicles. So it provides that pathway, that glide slope to get to that end goal of 100% zero emission vehicles. And if you look at where we are today, um, you know, in California for the first half of 2022, we were at 18% zero emission vehicle sales. Um, and, you know, that's up from just 5% uh, five years ago. So we're really on that path. And if you look 
broader, if you look outside the U.S., um, we're seeing other countries moving ahead as well. Uh, Germany, for example, is at about 25% zero emission vehicle sales. So um, it's something that, um, you know, the auto companies, I think this is a goal that they can meet, um, but we do need that regulatory backstop to make sure that they do make that transition. And as Jessica said, as quickly as possible. And so is this the push that car makers need to ramp up their production of, of electric vehicles, David? Yeah, this is an important part of making sure that drivers have the option to uh, choose an electric vehicle when they go buy a, a new vehicle. And so this will help provide that certainty that we're going to get those vehicles out there. And what we've seen right now is that some of the auto companies are, are, are participating. Some of the companies are moving ahead. Some are taking a more measured approach. A lot of companies are moving faster outside the U.S., and that's something we need to change um, because um, the emissions from the transportation sector are the, it's the largest mm -hmm. sector for global warming emissions in the U.S. Here in California, personal cars and trucks are over one quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions. So there's no way to wow. address climate change without addressing personal vehicles. Jessica, historically, one of the big hurdles for people purchasing electrical vehicles is having charging stations, right, to use when you need them. Are, are we building up the infrastructure of charging stations, too? Will, what will it take to meet that demand for places to plug in? Yeah, so, I mean, as David mentioned, it's really about, you know, this sort of pathway to getting there, um, to getting to a place where the entire fleet can transition to electric vehicles, you know, and sort of achieve these climate benefits. Um, and that process of expanding charging infrastructure is happening already. Um, there's federal funding going into, you know, expanding um, the network of chargers. There's a goal of 500,000 electric vehicle chargers along highways. Um, you know, it's important to install local chargers, um, enable residential charging and so forth. So the transition's happening. It's not without its hiccups, you know, as we go through this process. Um, one challenge is really to make sure that charging is available, you know, for people living in, in different kinds of residences, not only people that have off-street parking, so that they can in install charging when they're at home based mm -hmm. on, you know, work that we've done. That's That can be, you know, such an important foundation for people that want to purchase electric vehicles, it means that essentially most of the time you don't even have to think about refueling your car at all. You know, so anyway, I think there's there's a lot happening in this space, both coming from the private sector and then also with these um, government incentives, um, you know, coming in to sort of, again, yeah. accelerate that process. D doesn't the Biden in Inflation Reduction Act put lots of money into the interstate, uh, putting charges in the interstate system? Yeah, and I mean, there's the earlier infrastructure law that, you know, and that funding is already being dispersed to, to states, um, you know, with the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, you have further investment in infrastructure, you also have a continuation of and, and a sort of re revamping of, of tax incentives, tax rebates for people that want to purchase electric vehicles. So mm -hmm. I think it's really, you know, we're talking about a shift in how people are driving, many people drive vehicles every day, um, the decisions they're making about purchasing, you know, often what's a very large purchase for a given household, um, you know, so you have to really make that technology available and sort of 
accessible to, to people, but then also make sure the infrastructure is there to support it. Um, but we really have all of the technology we need to do that. And it's really about making sure this transition process is as smooth as possible. And, and one thing that people talk about a, a, a lot as we get more and more cars is whether the, the grid, can the grid handle, Jessica, more electric vehicles? Yeah, again, you know, it's important to be deliberate about the transition process. So depending on where you put those chargers and the power that they have, you can basically, more, you can seamlessly integrate charging into the, into the current grid, or, you know, if this is done in a haphazard way, you could cause very large spikes in electricity demand at certain times of day. So, you know, I can go more into that if, if you're interested, but um, we know basically what we need to know about how people move around in their cars, where they stop for how long, and then also what the background demand of electricity is. We know what we need to know to place chargers in places where you can essentially get rid of those peaks that would otherwise occur yeah. from charging. Yeah. Yeah, because we're going to have like a rush hour of, of charging, right? Where everybody's going to get That's home. Right. Everybody's going to get home. They're going to plug their cars in. They're going to say, yeah, I'm going I'm to charge. And maybe it's better to then set your car, which I can do on my electric car, tell it to charge at like 11 or 1 a.m. in the morning. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or even just make the process even easier for, you know, owners of these vehicles so that it's sort of pre-programmed in. And all you need to say is, OK, this is the earliest time. I'm going to have to leave in the morning, make sure my car is charged by right. then. Um, you know, so that's all very straightforward. And then also workplace charging can be really helpful uh, for regular commuters that can also allow us to use more of the solar electricity that's available and avoid having to install storage for the power grid. So we shouldn't just be thinking about the strains that electric vehicles, you know, might sort of make, you know, exert on the grid, but also the benefits that these vehicles can bring. Yeah. And David, adapting new technologies, this is not going to come without costs. I mean, the electric cars require lithium batteries, which in turn require mining metals like cobalt. How concerned should we be about the role of increasing the production of electric vehicles on, on dirty practices like mining? Yeah. I mean, one thing is, I, I think it is a false choice, though, between climate and, and air and water quality and other impacts. But as you mentioned, you know, as we transition to electric vehicles, it's important to ensure a sustainable and ethical EV battery supply chain. This is a major transportation energy transition, the likes we haven't seen probably since the you know, advent of the internal combustion engine and the rise of oil. So we need to avoid repeating the mis mistakes of the past and ensure that this transition is sustainable for our planet as well as for the communities um, that are impacted by the transition. Okay. There's some things we can do. I mean, one is that we need to reduce the demand for new materials. Um, we're going to need materials for these batteries, but we, there's things we can do to, to reduce that demand, like having more efficient electric vehicles. So the more efficient electric vehicle is, that means you can have a smaller battery and go the same amount of miles. Um, we can recycle um, used EV batteries so that to reduce the amount of new material that we need. That's not going to be the solution by itself because um, as we grow the number of EVs, there just won't be that many um, recycled batteries available initially. But it's something we can do to, to, to reduce the demand. Um, and then we can also reduce driving. So uh, driving an EV is much uh, yeah. cleaner than driving yeah. a gasoline vehicle. But if we switch to 
walking, biking, public transit, that even is a, is a, you know, a, a further reduction. In addition to reducing demand, we can ensure that there's strong protection, protections for communities and the environment at the mining stage. I think that is yeah. important. And to make sure that the industry ensures a, a, a battery supply chain that is ethical and sustainable. So many calls, so many people want to talk about this. Our number, 844-724-8255. Let's go to Joe in Richmond, Virginia. Hi, Joe. Welcome to Science Friday. How are you? Hi there. Go ahead. Yeah, I just got a few comments. Uh, the whole electric car thing is, you know, good in theory. doesn't work in practice. Uh, my original trade was inside machines for quite a few years, and I transitioned to the electrical side of industry. Uh, currently work for a power company. Uh, the, I deal with batteries every day, all day, with mobile substations and various other applications, electric forklifts. have nothing but problems with them. That's not even counting the computer side that monitors the batteries for these mobiles and forklifts, et cetera. Uh, it's just a battery is a battery. It's not a reliable piece of equipment. Uh, you know, it's good for stopgap application. And I'll give you a, a real quick example of how the battery thing's not going to work. I'm sure y'all know about that uh, winter storm this past winter where we had, what, 100 miles of cars stuck on 95, right? Ran out of gas, et cetera, et cetera. Well, what do you think what would happen if you, all those were battery-powered cars? You'd still be trying to charge them, get rid of the traffic jam. Uh, general rule of thumb is if it takes a battery, if you uh, discharge a battery or batteries, six hours, it takes six hours to charge it. I don't care what anybody says about quick charge batteries. There is no such thing. Okay. Interesting points. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Uh, talking about uh, batteries. Uh, David, what do you say to that? Uh, well, there's a couple things there that I think that the caller missed. One is that um, just in terms of the reliability of batteries and, and, and comparing them to other products, you know, these batteries are, um, it's its not the same as the battery in, in your cell phone. The materials are the same, but the batteries in these cars have sophisticated thermal control systems and um, battery health systems. So they're going to last uh, much longer than the battery in, in your cell phone. And um, in terms of the quick charging, I mean, that's absolutely wrong. Um, there are a number of quick charging solutions where you can get a significant amount of charge in in 15 to minutes to, to 30 minutes. So um, that's also really not just, um, accurate. Maybe this is just old time statistics. You know, we don't have that much experience with the newer batteries. And, and the caller was talking about his experience with probably older technology. Yeah, and I, th I think that's that's part of the the issue here is that we all know how a gasoline car works and we know how to refuel it. And for most of us driving an EV, it's going to be a, a learning process. It's going to be, um, you know, we're going to have to learn how it is. It's not that it, may it might not be harder, but it m it's different. Um, and so that's going to take some time. And one thing I think I've seen here in um, the San Francisco Bay Area is that you know, there is this positive feedback loop where, you know, once you get more vehicles on the road, your neighbors have an electric vehicle, your soccer coach has an electric vehicle, <laughs> your, your, your kids' friends have an electric vehicle. And, um, you know, you can ask questions of people you trust and know, you know, how does this work for you? Yeah. You know, have you had problems? And I think that it gets you more, um, more knowledge and also more, um, you know, uh, 
comfort you know, right. can be more comfortable about making that choice. One something that the mechanic and I know our caller was a mechanic also ha- asked me and said to me is that you know we don't have enough electric vehicle repair people. We just they're just not trained to, to you know to repair electric vehicles. We have them all over with the, you know internal combustion engines. Are people thinking about that also creating a team of repair people? Yeah, that's also something that's going to have to change. I mean, s- there there probably will be fewer repairs, um, especially fewer maintenance. So, you know, if you have an all-electric vehicle, you're not going to have oil changes. You're not going to change spark plugs. Um, you know, you're still going to need um, brakes and tires are going to be the same. Right. So <laughs> you can probably, right. um, uh, d- you know, it's the same technology. But um, there there will be the need for you know people to to build and and work on electric vehicles and those are going to be some different skill sets than for the conventional gasoline vehicles we've been just talking about electric cars so far and i want to pivot to talk a bit about technological advances in electrifying trains calling all sheldon cooper nerds my next guest worked to develop a freight train partially powered by batteries. Eric Gephardt is the Chief Technology Officer at Wabtec Corporation based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, Ira. Thanks for uh, having me on. It's an exciting opportunity. Well, let's start off by how does this battery electric train work as compared to a traditional diesel-powered train? Yeah, so today we have diesel-electric uh, trains, and, and what happens is you have a diesel engine on there, it drives an alternator that creates electricity. We then go ahead and drive the motors, the traction motors underneath that, just like an electric vehicle today uh, kind of drives on the motors there. That's how we run it. And what our goal is going forward, and we already have one that's been operating out in California, operated for 13,000 miles, uh, is to replace that diesel electric or that diesel engine with batteries. And how, how well is that working out so far? So it, it's worked fantastic so far. So we ran it out in uh, California along with BNSF and the California Air Resources Board. Ran over 13,000 miles, uh, saved over 70 or 6,200 gallons of diesel wow. and saved 69 tons of carbon from being produced. And the way it works is you drop this battery electric locomotive in between two diesel electrics and you kind of hybridize the train that way. And it's not so much how much are the batteries charged when you start. It's the regeneration that happens uh, during the course of travel. I, I rode on the train in one of its uh, last runs that we had. We discharged and recharged the batteries three times during that run. Wow. So it, is it not as simple as just swapping out the diesel and putting some batteries in there? Or is it a lot more involved than that? Yeah, you know, that's a a big step, how to manage the batteries, how to do the thermal management on this, making sure you have the technology so that you always have some energy when you're going up over uh, the highest peaks and you need the most tractive effort uh, during those times. So it is is just swapping this out, but there's always complexity in the details of the engineering. So when can we expect to see these freight trains and maybe passenger trains actually being bought up and putting putting on the tracks? 
Yeah. Like I mentioned, we've already had one operating. It was a first-of-a-kind operating uh, in the tracks out in California. We now have orders for a number of these throughout the world, so it's very exciting to have this. We'll start shipping uh, next year. And I just give a, a little more detail about uh, about these uh, battery electric locomotives. If we're working closely with General Motors on the batteries, so we're working with them to utilize technology that they already have, right. uh, and we're taking the pack from their Hummer uh, electric vehicle, which they're uh, starting to produce now. We've modified it slightly to make it ruggedized to run on on rails, and then we stack forty two of these up. Uh, and so you have 42 times the power, 42 times the energy of a Hummer in one of these locomotives that we're going to be shipping next year. That is kind of cool to, to imagine. And I know you have your sights on creating zero emission trains using also hydrogen fuel cells. Tell me about that. That sounds exciting. Yeah, that's that's really the next step. You know, when you look at, at uh, freight rail overall, it's already the most efficient way to move uh, freight around the country. In fact, you can move one ton of freight 473 miles on a gallon of diesel today because you have steel wheels on steel tracks versus rubber tires on asphalt roads. The efficiencies are amazing. The next step is to go to batteries, and we can make this even 30% more efficient with batteries, reduce the carbon production by 30%. And by each one of these battery electric locomotives we put in, it's the equivalent of taking 646 cars off the road, 3,000 tons of CO2 saved per year as we do that. But then to completely decarbonize the trains, we're going to need a, a different energy source, move from diesel to hydrogen. And we're already working on that, both with fuel cells and then also burning the hydrogen inside the internal combustion engine. Wow, wow Eric, thank you. This is exciting. Thank you for taking time to talk with us today. Great. Thank you, Ira. Eric Ebhard, Chief Technology Officer at the Wabtec Corporation based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We're talking about electrification of our all of our vehicles and our, our cars. Our number, 844-724-8255, with uh, MIT professor Jessica Transick and David Reichmuth, Senior Engineer at the Union of Concerned Scientists, and our phone. As I say, 844-724-8255, and, and, and let's go right to the phones. Here we go. Let's go to Brian in New Hampshire. Hi, Brian. Hey, Ira, thanks for taking my call. Uh, great subject. I think there's a few things that I've got in mind about the, the transition, but, of course, what you just had on mass transit is really the answer. The more we can do with that, the better we all are, will be. Anyway, the, the, if individual vehicles are worried about cost and range and uh, then sustainability, what are we going to do with the battery life cycles, those kinds of things? And if we get into emergency situations like with our climate changing and the latest little thing with Ian, uh, what happens when everybody's on batteries and we have a one solution answer here instead of hydrogen power and other solutions and uh, we have no place because we've lost power? What happens then? What are we thinking about? Jessica, David, any any answers to our caller? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's, you know, it is important to think about developing a portfolio of technologies. It's great to see all of the work that's happening um, with hydrogen fuel cells. I think the caller's point about public transit, expanding public transit, you know, that's a much more climate friendly way to go than, um, you know, driving a personal vehicle, whether it's an electric vehicle or an internal combustion engine vehicle. 
Um, so I think I, I agree with those points. On the point about the environmental impacts of um, you know, mining um, materials for, for batteries, primarily lithium-ion batteries are used right now for electric vehicles. You know, when you do a comparison of the life cycle impacts of extractive industries, you know, for supporting an internal combustion engine vehicle, you have to extract the fossil fuels from below the ground. Uh, all of the metals that go into really any car and compare that to the life cycle impacts of an electric vehicle, the electric vehicle still does come out, um, you know, mm -hmm. significantly reducing those impacts. But nonetheless, I, I think it is very important to think about the impacts of these extractive industries, whether for, you know, metals for electric vehicles or really economy wide. So I think that is a, an important theme to focus on going forward. And, and what about uh, hurricane disasters? I mean, the survivability of electric systems. I would think, and I know some homes in Florida that had battery and electric power roof or shingles on there actually survived the hurricane because they were generating more electricity even as the sun came out. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, especially when you have this larger battery capacity, let's say you have a vehicle you have this large battery capacity, um, that vehicle can potentially power essential, you know, appliances um, and, you know, lighting and other essential appliances in homes and also potentially essential services, you know, if we're looking at a community level. So I think there are great advantages to having more storage capacity around overall and the personal vehicles, personal electric vehicles can be an important part of that. Okay, Brian? Thank you very much. Thank you for calling. Yeah, thanks. Our number 844-724-8255. So many people. Um, let, let's go to, uh, where are we going to go to next? Let's go to Rachel in Topeka. Hi, Rachel. Rachel, are you yeah, there? Hi. Hi there. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Okay, well, I did want to um, touch on what David was talking about in regards to the oil changes, the spark plugs, things like that we won't have to deal with, but... We're going to have a lot more computer software issues with these vehicles. We can't just take it out into our garage, see if, you know, husband or dad can help us out, figure out what's going on, or even, you know, women and men both know what to do under the hood, so to speak. But we're going to get a lot more software issues, computer issues with these vehicles. We're going to have to find mechanics that are trained in these certain fields that are just hard to come by. I'm in rural Kansas. I'm going to have a hard time, number one, finding somebody that can do the work, figure out what's wrong with my car, diagnose it. When I have to pay buku bucks, do you, do you know that? Do you know that? Once I find them, do you know that for a fact? Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm guessing. Oh, okay. As common sense, <laughs> if we're going to have a lot more software in these electric cars, we're not going to have the uh, the manpower to to fix them. Like it's easy to go to a mechanic here, 15 minutes down the road. There's quite a few to choose from, but. If I have an electric vehicle here in this small town, Kansas, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to drive well, about you know, 45, 50 minutes down the road to Topeka to, to hopefully find a mechanic that can diagnose the issue. And then how much more am I paying Rachel, Rachel, to, Rachel, to do you know, what's going on? Do you know that some mechanics are coming to electric owners' homes on their driveways and fixing their cars? From some of the car how makers? How much do they charge per mile to come out to my house they, 50 miles away? I don't think they... Well, I don't know. It's a good question. Uh, the people I know who do this... Don't charge anything except for the repair, but what, but it's a good it's just point. It's something to think about. You know, it's yeah. something to think about Americans. How? What are the? What are the? We need to come up with solutions for problems like this, right? 
We're going to have to think about these things. Just small-town America, how are we being affected? Um, And just one more thing, that first caller had a really good point. Sounds like he's up to date. Um, You know, his experience, he's he's working with these batteries. He's saying, hey, wait a minute. They're not reliable. You're going to be, I feel like that was an I told you so moment. Ten years down the road, he's going to say, I called, I told him so. Because I know David spoke on, you know, well, it's not true that their their fast charging batteries are out there. But I want to hear his response to David's response to his call, because I think he (laughs) it sounds like he does have some experience in batteries today and how they're just not reliable. What are we going to do about that? traffic jam from the winter storm he mentioned. Okay, Rachel, um, I, 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 Rachel, I gotta, I gotta go. That. I gotta go. These are all great points. I thank you for calling it and these are these are all, Jessica, things that we'll all be thinking about, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's with any new technology, there are questions. Um, you know, it's important to think about the service side of it. Um, as David mentioned, the maintenance um, costs and also the types of repairs and maintenance that you'll need will go way down. But of course, you know, even with um, internal combustion or gas vehicles today, things can go wrong with the computer system that happens today. It could happen with electric vehicles too. So, but I think so far people are reporting a pretty good experience. Um, And also uh, like you were, you know, touching on repairs that can happen potentially at home um also um you know not having to think about refueling your vehicle on like 97 percent of days you don't have to spend the time doing that so i think there can also yeah but i I, you know these kinds of conversations are important and you know there's going to be growing pains with any new technology and so it's not to say everything's going to happen you know, without any hiccups, but right. we already see that with the right. cars we drive today and the price increases and in fuel and so forth. Um, you know, it's just, yeah, this is the world we live in. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios, talking about the future of electric vehicles with Jessica Chan- Transick and David uh, Reichmuth. Also, taking your calls. So we have, yeah, I think we can fit in another call. Let's 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 try to do that. Let's go to Colleen in Dixon, California. Hi, Colleen. Hi. Hi, go ahead. I'm wondering if um, anybody has taken into consideration, the being in California, the harvesters and stuff that are out in the field that run on diesel, and when they run out, the truck comes to them, refills, and goes. If they're, uh, they already cost hundreds of thousands of dollars just to buy the machinery in order to uh, switch it over to a battery would just be cost prohibitive for the farmers. And then on top of that, there's no way when they run out of juice that you can bring a power plant out there to recharge them. And the time-wise is prohibitive, too, because a lot of times these fields need to be harvested that day. Mm-hmm. They don't have time to recharge them. Uh, David, how do you answer that? Yeah, so, I mean, what we're talking about here in the regulations that we're talking about are for the passenger cars and trucks, which are just a large section of our global warming emissions, but we do need to address, uh, you know, larger trucks, off-road vehicles, trains. We need to address all parts of transportation, and the solutions are going to be different for, for different vehicles. And so, um, you know, uh, plug-in vehicles might work for, for some vehicles, for, for some, like, delivery trucks. Um, 
We've talked about hydrogen. There's also um, advanced biofuels. So there's going to be a role for different technologies. We're going to have to figure out how to reduce the emissions from that, but it doesn't have to be the same technology for, for every um, transportation application. It's probably going to be different. You know, putting on my engineer's hat, I mean, I want to see these different technologies like hydrogen and biofuels because there probably isn't going to be one solution for every vehicle out there. Um, but right. for the passenger vehicles, it certainly seems that um, the battery electric, the plug-in vehicle, is, right. is probably the right solution for most applications. You know, transition is a tough thing, right? I mean, you're talking yeah, a whole paradigm shift here, aren't you? When it's hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy a machine, you know, anyway, to try to switch it over or to buy something different, it would be really cost prohibitive for the farmers and it would put them out of business. Or the price of our food would triple or quadruple. So it doesn't mean that the immediate transition is going to happen, as you say, for all vehicles, but for the vast right. majority of vehicles, the cars and trucks. Well, and yeah. Even even the trucks that service. I don't know if you've uh, really seen uh, on a ranch, but you know there are many many vehicles that takes to run an operation, and it just seems yeah. like uh, even those would be uh, hard to have to charge. Yeah, I saw a, r a report this week that Pepsi is ordering a whole bunch of fleets of the new Teslas coming out with this new semi in December. They'll be ordering these new trucks that no one has seen yet. So. We have run out of time. I want to thank both of you for taking time. So much to talk about. We have to talk about this a lot more in the future. But I want to thank my guest, uh, Jessica Transick, professor at the Institute for Data Systems and Society at MIT in Cambridge. David Reichmuth, senior engineer at the Union of Concerned Scientists Clean Transportation Program. He's based in Oakland. Thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much.